Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. I am outraged by the news that a Canadian citizen, John Dell. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I'd, I'd rather not talk about any of this. I'd rather be able to say that the government of Canada has treated the victims' families respectfully, appropriately, and can at least pronounce the names of the individuals involved. And I, I'm sorry to have to call on Benice Thomas and uh, usually Gord Bibby, her cousin. Uh, Benice is the uh, sister of Robert Hall. Uh, Benice, it's, 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 it's hard to call on you all the time, but, but there are issues that have to be dealt with. And when you told us last weekend that you had contacted the global affairs minister and that she has made no effort to get back to you, that was deeply disturbing. And now we have um, a, a lawsuit that's brought by five people who say they were, mis, uh, they were abused at, at CSIS. And uh, it's the $35 million lawsuit. The prime minister speaks about it. The directors general of CSIS, past and present, speak about it. MPs speak about it. Uh, media cover, cover it, um, you know, in, in tremendous amount of coverage. Your family is forgotten. It would appear so. It would appear so. Or, um, uh, Roy, I just, I, 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 I can't make any sense of it. I don't understand. I mean, I have my theories, but I, I don't understand why they just flatly refuse to, to speak to us. Did the prime minister at any time, at any time, speak to you? Uh, after... Uh, my brother was murdered. He made a obligatory uh, condolence call to us, which was completely scripted and um, seemed disingenuine. And you know, it was a duty rather than than out of compassion or caring. It, it you know, so that and that's the only uh, interaction I've had with him. So you had the sense that he was reading what he called. You know, it, for the, for the most part, he it it was a scripted on behalf of the Canadian public, blah blah blah. Um, you know, and then we did have we did converse a bit, but he was very guarded and 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 kept to kept to the party line, I guess you could yeah. say. But they did nothing for you during the nine months that your brother was in captivity of Abu Sayyaf. Well, you know, they they. I don't even know how to explain this. It's such a, a complex and multi-layered story, Roy, but they, they've, I guess you could say they feigned help to us, but, you know, in, in my opinion, help would have been attempting a rescue. Right. That's, that's the only help. I mean, I've mentioned before in your show, when one finds themselves in a situation like this, there's really only four outcomes that will resolve it. One is ransom, one is rescue, one is escape, and one is death. And again, our government chose door number four. Of course we don't pay ransom, but they didn't do anything to attempt to rescue. My brother was shackled in a jungle, not a chance to escape. So I, I just, the only help that we really needed was a rescue attempt or some sort of political muscle with the Philippine government. And it doesn't appear in, in you know, two years of looking for, for any kind of information that, that a rescue was even on the table. Yeah. I was just reading uh, um, your, your cousin's, not, not uh, Gord, but I was reading your other cousin's email. Right. She didn't want me to mention her name, and I won't. Right. Uh, but she wrote, um, for nine months, we were not allowed to say anything to anyone, not even our eight children, because we were told if anything got onto social media, it would be dangerous for Bobby. So we silently prayed and did all we could for him quietly. Um, so, and, and I think you told us that uh, they, or, or Gord mentioned that the government essentially said, if you do do something or say something or put something on social media, and it costs your brother his life, then it's on you. 
Yeah, so, I mean, when this all started, when we sort of didn't know what was going on, um, we were told by the government and the RCMP, stay off social media, you know, try and, and more than anything, not make my brother look emotionally valuable to Abu Sayyaf. Um, so we understood that what we were trying to do was buy him a little bit of time so the government could figure out an action plan. Right. right. Well, the, it's more like one word, inaction plan. Exactly. It was an inaction plan. And, and so it didn't take very long to recognize that, you know, nothing, nothing was happening. And so, uh, you know, around the time that John was murdered... I started to really say, like, I, I don't understand why we don't go to the media. Why don't we get the Canadian public involved in this? Mm-hmm. And the messages coming back for me were, I mean, nobody actually said to me, it's on you. But, but consistently, the message coming back to us was, if, if this gets out, you will be responsible for endangering your brother's life, which is terrifying. So it, it was a very, very effective way to keep us quiet and to keep us from even speaking among our extended family to one another. We were so terrified that somebody might be having a conversation in a Tim, Timmy's over a cup of coffee and somebody would hear it and it would get out there that we weren't even really talking to each other about it. And it, it just, I mean, it, it, um, it, it has so fundamentally... Uh, damaged and hurt so many members of the family because to to go through this grief and not be able to share it and find support from loved ones with it and understand that people are working hard and praying hard for my brother is one thing um, but yeah just to be um, com- completely shut down that's terrible it, it's terrible. terrible. But yeah. now they have the $10.5 million for Cotter. Yeah. And Mr. Trudeau very directly spoke up for Cotter, saying that he, yeah. his charter rights made this important. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the court now has protected the $10.5 million. Mm-hmm. And now we have five people from CSIS. They're launching a lawsuit for $35 million. Mm-hmm. I have no real comment on that, other than it's getting a tremendous amount of attention, where at the same time, you're still waiting for a reply from... Christopher Freeland from the, for, so the not it's not foreign affairs anymore because you can't say foreign Glo- global, affairs, global affairs Canada no word no nothing indeed indeed not a word and I still you know I mentioned last week that my MP a Liberal MP Pam Goldsmith Jones you know uh, I talked to her around the 16th of June and she in, uh, assured me I'll get back to you next week and I haven't heard back from her either why don't you sue them well. You know, it's uh, it's really turning around in my in in my head. Everybody else is. And well, you know, Roy, like I'll tell you this. And I don't think Canadians would be upset if you got paid ten five ten point five million. Yeah, I, you know, I just I'm a proud Canadian. My brother was an incredibly proud Canadian, and this may sound odd, but. Canadians don't do this sort of thing. We're not a suing nation. We try and work things out. Mm. And up till now, that's kind of how I've been thinking. Like, there's no way I'm going to sue our government. But now, you know, I just, I look at it. and it, it, Do it. I, 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 I think that... Sorry, but I, I, would, I would advise you just do it. Because, because you know, if, if a convicted terrorist is entitled to $10.5 million, then your family... And for Mr. Trudeau's benefit, the Ridsdale family, because he couldn't say it, mm-hmm. um, they're also entitled. So yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Benice. I don't want to keep wanting to, you know, keep asking you to come on the radio. And I know it's important to you that Canadians hear what, what in fact is going on and what isn't going on and what happened and what didn't happen because you have the National Electronic Petition mm-hmm. that is before mm-hmm. Parliament. But, you know, it's, you deserve far better than you've been receiving and you've been receiving clearly nothing, nothing. That's right, Roy, and I, I just think, you know, if it's, if we're not going to be responded to through, you know, hundreds of letters now that have been sent over the last couple of years, if we're not going to be responded to through the petition, then, then okay, is this what it's going to take? We have to launch a lawsuit so that an inquiry gets done and an investigation gets done. Yeah, no inquiry, right? No inquiry. 
nothing yet. No inquiry, no inquiry, nothing. No word of anything. No. Bernice, you take good care. Thanks, Roy. And um, again, thanks to your listeners. Like, I really appreciate... We yeah, care about you. People I don't even know are putting in on the on behalf of my brother and my family. So, you know, God bless everybody. Thank really you, Really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks, Roy. Bye-bye. Benice Thomas. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I don't look at this as profiting. This is not a time for profit or for gaining or for... Uh, thinking, oh, I did it, or I hit the jackpot, or whatever. This is, this is, I think, a time for remembering. It's a time of reconciliation. We were on a track to having to spend 30 to 40 million dollars uh, in the coming years, uh, fighting and settling uh, a case that we were destined to lose. So, how do you know that, Mr. Trudeau? How do you know that? How do you know? How are you so present? How are you so all-knowing about how the Supreme Court is going to decide? So that's where it was headed, I guess. So actually what he's saying is he saved us about 10 or $20 million by paying Carter $10.5 million. My goodness. My goodness. I want to read this to you from the Equitas Society. The Equitas Society is calling on the Canadian government to uphold its obligations and respect the charter rights of Canadian disabled soldiers with claims under the new Veterans Charter, as it has for a war combatant in Afghanistan, Omar Khadr. The Canadian government must now acknowledge its obligations to our veterans and restore lifelong pensions and fair compensation to these disabled soldiers. In 2012, six disabled Afghan war veterans launched a legal action against the Canadian government for their disproportionately low disability benefits compared to what was available to similarly disabled soldiers prior to 2006 when the new Veterans Charter was introduced. The new Veterans Charter stripped disabled veterans of lifelong disability pensions and replaced them with a lump sum settlement process that in many cases amounts to a fraction of what previous veterans received. In response, the Canadian government argued in the British Columbia Supreme Court that Canada has no social contract between members of the Canadian Armed Forces and the government and the people of Canada. Rather than acknowledge the unique and selfless contribution of Canadian veterans and the corresponding duty to provide for them in the event of disability, the government continues to litigate with its disabled veterans. In 2015, Justin Trudeau campaigned on his promise restore lifelong pension benefits for disabled soldiers and end their legal battles against the Canadian government. Once in power, Prime Minister Trudeau broke his promise and has continued the fight with disabled soldiers on the basis that there is no social contract and his government can do as they please. The Equitas Society. Justice, Fairness, Equity. Yeah, I guess you can do whatever you want. When you're the Prime Minister of Canada, you can even say ridiculous things like, he said to justify the $10.5 million payment to the self-confessed terrorist. Omar. Omar. Uh, U.S. Army Special Forces Sergeant Lane Morris, wounded in Afghanistan, Lost his eyesight from the uh, grenade that Omar Cotter threw. You know the story by now. He joins us on the Roy Green Show. He's back with us. He was with us um, last weekend, and I've talked to Lane many times over the last 10 years. Lane, good to have you back. Hey, it's great to be back on the show, Roy. I want to introduce you to, uh, and you spoke so highly of the Canadian military last weekend and your association with the Canadian military. And you mentioned the PPCLI. Well, uh, with us is... Major uh, Mark Campbell, PPCLI officer who lost both of his legs and suffered other trauma in a Taliban IED ambush. Major Campbell is a principal in the Equitas lawsuit. Major Campbell, um, Sergeant Morris. Hey, Sergeant Morris, how you doing? It's an honor to speak with you, sir. I appreciate your service and especially your sacrifice. I, uh, I know Americans and... Um, your fellow Canadians feel the same way I do, but uh, it's uh, it's an honor to speak with you, sir. Well, the honor's all mine, uh, Mr. Morris, and, uh, and and right back at you with uh, with the accolades. 
listen, the first thing I really want to do to get off my chest is I, I, really, I really think uh, um, uh, you are your own an apology, and uh, I want to express that apology on behalf of the vast majority of, of right-thinking Canadians, and in particular your northern brothers in arms. I think what our government has done is, is, is simply obscene, and uh, it flies in the face of, of, of all common sense. And uh, and it's just simply not right. And, and you know, it's not fair. It's not right. It's not just. And uh, I, I think a, a gross misjustice has been has been done on on uh, on behalf of Canadians by our government. And uh, I just want you to know that uh, most of us. Well, in fact, I, I can I can probably guarantee you that every one of us who has ever worn a uniform um, is is disgusted with what's been done. Well, I, I, you know, I appreciate that and. Uh... Your uh, former leader Stephen Harper called me the other day and expressed the same uh, the same sentiments and and I'll, I'll tell you the same thing I told him which is I I know Canadians and uh, I know how they feel and no apology is necessary um, I, I hold the Trudeau government squarely it's solely and exclusively responsible for this it's uh, it's just astounding to me that, as Roy's kind of gone over, how a man could just so quickly roll over and empty the bank for somebody um, for so little of, uh, you know, whether you agree that his rights were were uh, were violated or not, $10.5 million, it's just, it's, it's an offense to Canadians to uh, say that they have to uh, foot that bill, and I and uh, my sympathy is right back to you. I want to introduce a, another member to our panel. By the way, Mr. Trudeau should have gone to court. That's what courts are for. When somebody sues for $20 million, you don't give them more than half of it just because you think it might cost you more over a period of years. I'm just going to read from a CBC story. Veterans Affairs officials have been ordered to review. This was 2014. Have been ordered to review the case of a soldier from Delta, British Columbia, after he was denied compensation for a neck injury made worse by post-traumatic stress disorder. Warrant Officer Brian McKenna injured his neck back in 2000 during bayonet training. He received hospital treatment and went on to serve twice in Bosnia and twice in Afghanistan. McKenna was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder after witnessing an explosion that destroyed an armored bus, killing 13 people, including five of his close friends. And the, uh, the uh, Veterans Affairs Department um, denied compensation. Warrant Officer McKenna, thank you for joining us, and uh, I'll introduce you to Sergeant uh, Lane Morris. Yes, it's uh, my pleasure to be on the show today, and uh, my pleasure as well to share company with these uh, two gentlemen. Uh, Sergeant Morris, we haven't met, but uh, thanks for what you've done for your country, and it's always good to uh, talk to Mark again. Well, I appreciate that. Lane, let me ask you... Uh, what was your immediate reaction when you heard that the Ontario court had decided as it had? Had you been given a sense that this was probably with the way the court was going to rule? You know, I know, I know the kind of the liberal bent uh, of your court. And so, it, yeah, I, I guess I was uh, prepared. Doesn't mean I wasn't disappointed, but uh, I guess I wasn't surprised. When Stephen Harper called you, Tell, tell us a bit about the call and the, you know, what what he, what, how did he sound to you when he called? Well, he was, you know, he was frustrated and, and he was upset and angry at this. It didn't, you know, it didn't strike him as uh, the right thing to do. It, uh, he felt like it was an embarrassment to all Canadians that uh, the Canadian government would treat Omar Cotter with such, uh, with such generosity uh, with, uh, like you said, a case that's not even been decided, uh, been to court. And uh, like myself, is when you see the circumstances and, and see that, uh, that Mr. Trudeau has done everything possible to shield Omar Cotter from, shield that money, help uh, Omar Cotter to shield that money, which goes all the way from the amount of the money he gave to the timing to give it and the uh, delayed announcement of the award, um, yeah, that, that's got to be frustrating to anybody, and especially when the Trudeau government says, no, 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 it's, no, this is, you know, we have all these legal reasons. That's, that's probably my problem with this in the first place. Uh, Trudeau seems to uh, jump in and out of the, either politics or it's legal, um, and whichever, whichever situation seems to benefit Omar Cotter, 
is uh, the, the straw that he grasped. Let me take a quick break. We'll come back with uh, all three of our guests. Major Mark Campbell, Warrant Officer Brian McKenna, Sergeant Lane Morris from the United States Military. And we'll talk a bit about how rapidly the federal government is able to get things done when it wants to and how foot-dragging things can be when it's not all that convenient for the government from a public relations perspective. Don't go away. It's The Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. The good thing about this apology for me is that it's going to restore a little bit of, of my, my reputation here in Canada. It's, and maybe that would give people an opportunity, you know, to give me a chance and to think there might be more than what is just said in the media. So, so, so Omar Cotter says the apology by Justin Trudeau will restore a, quote, little bit of my reputation. Well, anything that restores Omar Cotter's reputation should scare the hell out of the rest of us. With me on the program, Major Mark Campbell, PPCLI, fought in Afghanistan, lost his legs in Afghanistan, and is battling in the courts for the appropriate recognition and compensation for Canada's wounded military veterans. Also, Warrant Officer Brian McKenna has severe PTSD, had a significant neck injury, and was denied compensation. He is part of the uh, Equitas group that uh, Major Campbell is part of in their, the lawsuit, and uh, also with the Sergeant Lane Morris from the United Great. States military. Um, Major, Major Campbell... Please share with us what what's going on as far as the Equitas case is concerned now, and and all we we have to be fair. It began with the Harper government not acknowledging the fact that you had a social the the government had a social contract with this military. Yeah, that that's absolutely correct, Roy. Um, where we stand right now is we're in uh, year uh, about year six of uh, of the lawsuit, and uh, we've been essentially on hold for the better part of uh, well over a year now. Uh, what happened uh, most recently was uh, about a year ago, um, we uh, we had finished off uh, the better part of, a, of, of another year of mediation um, that uh, we'd been uh, requested to, to pursue with the federal government. That mediation was unsuccessful uh, because the government would not commit to a timeline, uh, the Minister of Veterans Affairs would not commit to a timeline for the, the implementation of a, of a return to a lifelong uh, disability pension. So um, in response to that, uh, we went back to court. Uh, the government took us back to court, um, the, the, the Liberal government, and uh, essentially um, tried to reiterate the same arguments that they'd, they'd used initially, that uh, Canada had no duty or obligation of, of special care towards its, its veterans, uh, no social contract, no obligation. Uh, unfortunately for them, those same arguments uh, were irrelevant, uh, rendered irrelevant, because in the preceding year um, there had been several um, legislative no. um, amendments passed in in the in the House of uh, Commons um, that 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 were to the effect that there was in fact a social covenant, uh, especially and particularly with disabled soldiers. So where we are now is we've been waiting for a year for the BC Court of Appeals to render a decision. There's a three-judge panel there. Um, normally, this is about a six-month process. It's been a year, given the complexity of the case. And uh, right now, we're in waiting mode for the B.C. Court of Appeals to render its decision so that we can proceed with certification for the Supreme Court of Canada. This is so discouraging to hear that a federal government would have such a negative attitude and not be willing to take care of its military veterans, the people they send into harm's way when they're so willing to take care of themselves with their fabulous pension and their not-too-shabby salary. I'll go to uh, Warren Officer McKenna in just a moment for his thoughts on the same question. But uh, Sergeant Lane Morris, what what about the United States? What does the U.S. I mean, do you have the same kind of battles with with your federal government that clearly that uh, our, our wounded Canadian veterans have with ours? You know, you'll hear horror stories, but but frankly, we don't have those types of issues. The government accepts that they do have a an obligation, a social contract, an actual contract, and. Um, by and large, our, our wounded and disabled military members are treated um, with that level of, uh, and I really, I think it's a matter of respect um, and, and appreciation for, uh, for their service. So it's a little puzzling to me how, how your government could uh, treat your soldiers so badly. That, that seems like one of those very basic 
elements of being a nation is that you take care of those who have borne the battle, as Abraham Lincoln said. And Major Campbell and and, uh, and uh, Mr. Wennett have uh, are are those folks, and how they have to fight six years for that. That just seems nuts to me. Yeah. Uh, Brian McKenna, Warrant Officer McKenna, uh, federal government, and this you and I talked briefly about this off the air when I called you earlier, federal government can do things extremely quickly when it wants to and find itself hopelessly bogged down uh, conveniently when it doesn't. Yeah, that, that's very true, you know. I mean, you can look at the situation in front of us right now with Mr. Cotter. Uh, you can look at other situations. You know, my, my province is on fire right now. I mean that literally. We have 170-plus fires in this province. So you could see the government response. It's uh, care and, and effort was asked for. Check was signed. Planes are in the air. People are moving. Uh, 25,000 refugees were brought over from Syria for six weeks. And that's just cabinet leaning forward and saying to the ministries, make it happen. And Mark was very accurate when he said, we are years in to our case. So at the end of the day, no one's leaning forward and making it happen. And I put it this way, is I'm no hero. I'm just a regular guy that served in the Canadian military, proud to do it. But I'll tell you this much. I've trained your soldiers. I was one of your soldiers. As a warrant officer, I cared for your soldiers. I have done what you asked me to do. And Mr. Cotter, as a citizen, was asked to do things as well. In other words, if you don't agree with the government, protest peacefully. If you don't agree with what we're doing, don't commit crimes while you're expressing that. Don't take up arms against the state. In other words, he's not done what we asked him to do as a basic citizen. And yet he's been given this expedient care, this immediate response, this cash. And here I am, sitting here with my friends, my compatriots, talking to two of them on the line on your show today, and we're not seeing that kind of speed. And that's the thing that really grates on me with this, is when they want it to happen, they can literally move tens of thousands of people in six weeks and just do it. Well, where's that kind of action for us? Yeah, where is that kind of action for for you? Now, Warrant Officer McKenna, Major Mark Campbell, thank you so much. It's uh, EquitasSociety.ca. That's where you can find it uh, on on the web, ladies and gentlemen. EquitasSociety.ca, and uh, Sergeant Main, Lane Morris, uh, Lane. It's we've been talking for years. I don't think this is over yet, and I think we'll be talking again. Well, I hope so, Roy. I mean, I hope it's over soon, and I hope it works out how. Uh any reasonable person thinks it should. Yeah. But, uh, either way, I'm sure we'll be talking. All right. Gentlemen, thanks so much. Oh, you're very welcome, Roy. I wish you all the best there, Lane. Uh, to you and uh, to Tabitha Spear, I hope uh, I hope you achieve the success that you're looking for. Okay. Likewise, uh, Major Campbell and uh, Sergeant McKenna, I wish you both the uh, best of luck. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much. So, uh, Lane Morris, Major Mark Campbell, and Brian McKenna, warrant officer, on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Now, you know, on this program, for the last number of months, we have specifically and directly talked about the opioid issue. I won't call it a crisis. It is for patients. But it's an issue that has to be dealt with. And there's less than the truth being told by governments, and there's less than the truth being told by medical bodies when it comes to patients, chronic pain patients or chronic agony patients, or require opioid medication for a quality of life that they have had sometimes in excess of 10 years. Because their doctors, in consultation with the patients, decided that opioids was the way to go, the way for these people, human beings, good people, to have some quality of life and not just lie on their beds and not be able to move, or as an increasing number of patients have told me, thinking about suicide. I also heard from a physician that he's been told by other physicians who treat chronic pain patients that there's an increase in the numbers of suicides among chronic pain patients. Why? Well, that's going to be studied. I can leap to an immediate conclusion. You've heard patients, you've heard doctors, 
You've heard the Federal Minister of Health, who I don't think enjoyed the interview that she did with me particularly, because she didn't have the answers, but she kept saying that my questions were, to quote Minister Philpott, fantastic. Hillary Morden is a Ph.D. candidate in criminology at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. She's a business entrepreneur and a mother, and her husband is a city councilor in... Uh, whereabouts in B.C., Mike? Um, I'm, I'm former, actually. Former city councilor. Yeah. What, what, what community? Yeah, Maple Ridge, British Columbia. Maple Ridge, yeah. I, w- I had it written down, and then you know what happens. Sometimes your mind goes blank. Uh, Hillary Morden's also a chronic pain patient who a year ago received a letter from her physician informing her she would no longer be allowed to receive her pain medication. Ms. Morden decided that was not going to be the case and she was going to fight back. Hillary, it's good to talk to you on the air. Thank you for having me. We've talked a fair bit off the air, you and I, and it's great yeah. to have Mike with us as well. Let's, let's start at the beginning. Would you tell us, please, about what your illness is, the backgrounder on it, and... What sort of consultation, what sort of process took place that found you on opioid medication after consultations with your doctor? What happened? Okay, well, I was 36 years old and very healthy, very active mother. I ran businesses and I raised my kids and I taught music. And one morning I woke up and I was really, really sick. And for the next two years, I was in excruciating pain. I saw more than a dozen physicians, five specialists. During that time, I lost 30 pounds. I was down to 105 pounds. My hair was falling out. Sorry, it's hard to go through this. And um, my skin was gray, and they, all the doctors who saw me knew that I was really sick, knew that I was, in fact, dying from the pain. And... Um, I finally was diagnosed with an ulcerative form of interstitial cystitis. And um, they knew it was a very painful condition. They knew it probably wouldn't kill me in the short term. But still, they weren't treating me for it. And I was desperate. Um, I had had to go, go in for a bladder dilatation, and the specialist tore my bladder when he did that. And um, it was at that point, two years into my illness, that I decided it was going to kill myself. And so I arranged for my family to go to a hockey game, and I rented a hotel room and sought out an illegal gun so that I could kill myself and not do it at home. And in a final desperate bid for help, I went back to the old doctor who had cared for me when my children were born, and she put me on a very low dose of morphine. And so for the first time in two years, I actually slept for four hours. I'd been living my life in 20-minute periods because the pain was so bad. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't work. I couldn't sleep. And um, for the next 10 years, I was a science experiment. I was in experimental studies for uh, new medications in the United States, Germany, and Canada. They tried um, everything to try and control the pain. I did acupuncture, Reiki, massage therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, TENS therapy, biofeedback, positive thinking, prayer, support groups, counseling, everything. Um, and again, I was had gotten to the point where I, it was untenable. I couldn't live like that. And I went into a walk-in clinic, and the doctor there Uh, took me on as a permanent patient, and the two of us worked together to find the right combination of narcotics to control my pain and give me my life back. And I was put on six Percocet a day and four to five 20 milligram Oxycontin. And since that time, which was 12 years ago, I went back to university and I got two honors degrees in psychology and English. I became a mother to my children again. Um, in fact, was healthy enough to take in an extra child as a foster child. I became a wife to my husband again. Um, I earned a number of federal scholarships, provincial scholarships, uh, writing awards, grants. And then I went on and I did my MA. And then I went on to my PhD in organized crime, where I interviewed just under 100 active organized crime members who were not incarcerated. They were what we call in the wild. And as a result of that, I've published a dozen papers. I've contributed to three textbooks. I've spoken all over North America 
um, on organized crime to policing groups to at academic conferences. Um, I took on a job teaching as a sessional lecturer at SFU and am currently in negotiations to write a book. So you really sound like a dysfunctional addict. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't start becoming dysfunctional until 2015 when um, my doctor came in and said that the college had reviewed my file and they wanted him to take me off my narcotics. And so from about the middle of 2015 till I got that letter in 2016, my monthly appointments would be uh, me going in to get my prescription and my doctor saying to me, you can't have these meds anymore. And I would beg, I would plead, I threatened, I cried. Um, And he continued to give me the medications because I was just so... Um, strong-minded and so determined, Mm -hmm. but then the policy was put into place, and I got that letter on uh, June 6th that said I could no longer have the medication. I should point out to our listeners that in British Columbia, when it comes to opioids, the situation is somewhat different than the rest of the country. It's a 50 milligram a day maximum in B.C., and the guidelines for the country that that Professor... um, um, I always forget his last name on the show not long ago, the editor of the guidelines from McMaster University. For the rest of the country, it's 90 milligrams. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Now, we're talking with Hillary Morden and her husband, Mike Morden, and uh, Hillary is a chronic pain patient, as you've heard, and she's obviously faced some tremendous challenges with doctors and with regulations and one thing that I said to the Federal Minister of Health during the interview is, remember the Hippocratic Oath, the first line is, first, do no harm. Uh, Mike, how did your wife's illness and pain uh, challenge you and your family? Well, I, uh, in short, I guess the, the, the uh, pursuit of, of trying to find out what was causing all of this in the beginning was sort of a, a journey that we, uh, we got to a place where she could have some decent quality of life under the opiate program and uh, her doctor and her were working very well together and uh, as you can see from her story she got her life back and uh, I have to say that it was pretty nice for our family to uh, to have a a complete family with some some measure of quality of life and uh, the ability to function you know amid some difficult circumstances it is so counterintuitive to take somebody off a program that is helping them simply because there's a policy that bureaucrats have decided that they are going to enforce. And they've intimidated physicians to the point, I understand now that there are doctors who are going to have their prescribing privileges taken away by by their colleges because Mm -hmm. they don't want them to prescribe opioids anymore to patients who desperately need these medications. Hillary, the, uh, the policy itself, what does it do to the relationship between the patient and the doctor? Well, it takes a previously workable relationship and makes it adversarial. I'm a threat to my doctor because every time I come in every month and he writes a prescription, he does it under the cloud that the college could take his license away, which means you know several thousand patients won't get the care that they need. And God knows we're short of doctors in B.C., for the patient, it is traumatizing. It infantilizes the patient. It makes me feel helpless. My privacy is violated by the college with them looking at my personal care, which is the relationship that should be between my doctor and myself. Um, and it, it just it makes it where the monthly visit becomes something that I fear beginning the week ahead. And I experience anxiety and depression frustration, hopelessness. It interferes with my work. It interferes with my teaching, my writing, everything. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, it, it reduces I've heard the this. quality of life. I've heard this from different patients. Days before the appointment with the doctor, they yes. become extremely anxious and extremely worried. Now, you decided, though, that you would fight back, and you took a particular position, indeed. a personal position, and you informed the college of what you would do if your medication was withheld, what your choices were and what you would do, and how did they... Re- tell us what, what, what you decided and what the response was. 
Well, the first thing I did is I got myself a lawyer to sue the college under the Charter of Rights um, section that says I am I have a right to live without torture because to take away my medication is to torture me. And the college didn't respond. I emailed them. I wrote them letters. I even went to my MLA and got my MLA to intervene for me, and they would not speak to him. So then I went to my doctor, and I told him flat out, I said, if you take my medication away, I'm going to make you kill me, and then I'm going to have my estate sue you for wrongful death. So I will request assisted suicide. I'm going to make you do it, and then we're going to sue you for it. Um, and I, I, that's how desperate I was. That I, ha- I had no choice. And my doctor then wrote the college, and the college backed off and said he could continue to prescribe the dose that I had been on, um, I guess, in perpetuity, but I don't know. Wow. So, so, you, anyway. so you, you called them out. And I you're really, indeed. you're really called them out, and <laughs> yeah. they ba- and they backed and I off. I meant it. I absolutely meant it. I can't, I can't go back and live like that. I can't. And, and they backed off, and, and that speaks that speaks volumes to how secure they are with the policy that they're that they're that they've, in, they've put in place the governments and the college colleges. And what's happening is, I think they've lost control of the conversation now. Yes. They had it their own way for quite a long period of time, and now they have lost control of the conversation. Yet they claim that they instituted the policy to prevent the misuse of prescription narcotics. <laughs> so, I mean, right? run with that one. Okay, well, the reality is, is they're creating the street drug epidemic that they claim that they're actually controlling. So this, this whole discussion started with the DEA at the end of the so-called crack epidemic. They turned their, their attention to narcotics, and they went after doctors and pain clinics. And um, they said that there was this epidemic, which there wasn't. And so what happens is when patients are, have their medications removed, they only have a couple of choices. And one of the choices is, of course, they can turn to the streets and get illicit narcotics that are readily available on the street. So the first thing it does is it benefits organized crime through price increases. So Percocet and Oxy at the time that this first started went up to $5 a pill for Percocet and a dollar per milligram for Oxy. So an Oxy 20 was $20, so on and so forth. Um, as, as patients turn to the street, they run out of money. Obviously, they can't afford that. It's very expensive to keep their pain meds up. And the drug dealers will then tell them, we'll just use heroin or fentanyl. It's a lot cheaper. So this, of course, leads to increased numbers of clients uh, for street drugs, increased overdoses, because you've got street drug naive people going to the street, getting drugs, getting what they think is one right. thing, but it's another thing. Right. Um, they don't know about Narcan. They don't have the social systems around them to go after, um, to help them with, like, Narcan when they yeah. So I have, I, I have about two minutes. I have a question here, okay. though, that I wanted to ask you. What happened to the, what did the lawyers say when you, when you, when you wanted to have a charter challenge, that you, you can't be tortured? What, what, because I've, I've heard time and again that the best way to take this to court uh, if it's going to be a class action, it's going to have to be on charter uh, basis. So what did the lawyers yes. say? Well, they were very much for it. They felt very strongly that they'd be able to get me the right to have the medications. They were the company that fought for the right to assisted suicide. But they required an affidavit from my doctor. And my doctor, in fear of the college, would not write an affidavit about my health and about my treatment, that he had treated me this way for, you know, 10, 12 years. Um, And so they were not able to move forward. So um, what we need is we need a test case where the doctor will write that letter, will mm-hmm. write that affidavit, and with that test case, we can then take it to court, and then we can start a class action. Well, I think if, uh, if doctors increasingly are having their prescription privileges removed, you're going to see doctors who will stand up, and you'll also see doctors who are fed up with seeing their patients uh, harmed. And as yes. I said, I've, I've been hearing that uh, some doctors, pain doctors, are reporting sort of internally that uh, increasing numbers of their patients are committing suicide. Um, Hillary, we'll, we'll, we'll talk again for sure. And Mike, thank you very much for joining us as well. All the best to both of you. Thank you so much for having us on. And we'll definitely talk again. Hillary thank Morton you. and her husband Mike on the Roy Green Show on the Corliss Radio Network.
on the issue of pain meds for chronic pain patients, more like chronic agony patients. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Catherine Swift, are you there? I'm here. Workingcanadians.ca, how come I've got an echo? I don't know. I'm in an echo here. I'm in an echo chamber. Oh, I don't so, hear any. No, 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 I wasn't asking you. I was asking the studio. Oh, okay. So we're both in an echo chamber now. Uh, Linda Leatherdale, uh, that's a little bit. No, it isn't. Former money editor of the Toronto Sun and um, vice president of Cambria, Canada. Hello, Linda. Hello, Roy. How Am are I you? in an echo chamber? You, you, you are an echo chamber. I can hear you loud and clear, though, so that's a good thing. <laughs> well, apparently it's, what are you telling me, it's coming from Linda's line? So hang up on her. We'll call you back, Linda. Okay, sure. Okay, I have to make all the executive decisions here. It's rough. Everybody, it is rough. That's why they pay you the big money, Roy. Huh? That's why they pay you the big bucks. I'm sorry, the hearing's gone too now. <laughs> <laughs> so let us begin as we... Yeah, it was Linda, So uh, because she's gone and the echo's gone. Oh. So we're going to have to buy her a better telephone. Let's begin with a, with a story here, Catherine, that uh, the Fraser Institute... Um, wrote or released earlier this week, and that is that uh, the province of Alberta, between 2007 and 2015, Albertans contributed 221.4 billion dollars more revenue to federal coffers than they received in federal transfer payments and services. And I'm just reading from their release: a much larger net contribution than any other province finds a new study released by the Fraser Institute. So Albertans have, for so long, been talking about the transfer payments, and rightly so, they're still delivering tremendous amounts of money in transfer payments. Is this a system that is totally uh, devolved into inequity? And what happens when, over a longer period of time, if the key contributor, in this case it would be Alberta, starts to struggle economically? Well, it's, it's, uh, equalization is a disaster for many, many, many reasons. Um, it's a very complicated computation that is made as to who gets what. And, um, and Alberta certainly, when you look through the decades, ever since equalization exist, existed, I think they received a pittance <laughs> way, way back in the early stages, but, but literally they have been a giver for virtually the entire time of equalization. And as the Fraser, you know, that wasn't news. I think it was just an update, <laughs> really, from the Fraser Institute. They have, they have contributed so much to the rest of the country that I don't blame Albertans for a second. Well, well they, also, they, also, they also point out that the federal government would be in the red without the province of Alberta yeah. and its constant uh, shoveling of money at everyone else, including the bitchers and the moaners in, uh, like Denny Coderre, oh, wow. who just cannot get enough uh, of complaining about Alberta's oil and cl- climate impact, but it, the greedy little fingers are there and the brown envelopes are open and ready for the cash to be deposited. Well, that's exactly what I was just about to say, Roy, is a lot of the problems with equalization, the original intention was was good in a kind of Pollyanna-ish way because it was meant to equalize the provision of public services across the country. So provinces that had weaker economies, you know, they... they sh- you know, they should have the same number of nurses per capita, you know, and that kind of thing. But, of course, what has happened, what is the perversity of it, is that um, in, in many parts of the country, like Atlantic provinces, for example, have been long-term recipients, as has Quebec, of equalization. And they have more, like, nurse. you know, you want to look at these things like, I'm just using nurses per capita as one of many sort of indicators one could use. They have actually more than other parts of the country, because when you've got free money, you tend to spend it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also, you know, the disincentive it has been to governments um, to, to be pr- even remotely prudent with their spending. But once again, if money is flowing to you that you frankly have not earned, then you're going to squander it a lot more than if you actually had to, you know, bust your butt to, to earn it. You know, I lived, you know, I lived in Quebec for yes. 10 of the last 11 years. And I would guarantee you that if I spoke to 100 Quebecers in the area of Quebec that I lived 
and I mentioned transfer payments, yeah. and I mentioned that billions and billions and billions of dollars, like eight or nine billion dollars in a calendar year, had flown from Alberta to the province of Quebec, they would look at me and say, no, 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 c'est pas possible. No, well, that, that's because, I mean, every time the, the, the so-called separatist thing comes up, the amount of balderdash <laughs> Yeah, but I'm just, what, I'm, what I'm saying, Catherine, what I'm saying, it's not just Quebec. I think there is such a... There's such a, a an expectation now. It's like Santa Claus, well, and Santa's always going to bring you presents. It's entitlement, Roy. Yeah, because once you, you know, once you receive for. something for decades, you you absolutely expect it. Mm-hmm. And boy, if it was cut off, people would be up in arms like crazy. And yet, it's but it's not helping because it's like any it's like a form of welfare. Welfare ultimately undermines your work ethic and and so on. And and all of these locations that are you know have been the net recipients for ages. Their economies are weak in part because, in, in large part, because they haven't bothered to be competitive. Mm-hmm. Okay, on to something else. Linda, you back with us? I am, Roy. What kind of phone do you have? Well, I, I was on my home phone, but now I'm on my cell phone. Well, there's, so, no echo, there's no echo there, so we'll go with that one for today. Okay, okay? good, good, good. Yes. And, and I will call Bell on your behalf. Because I have to call them on my behalf, too. Well, the home phone is Bell, but I don't know. Anyway, Anyway, let's talk about the interest rates. And for the first time in seven years, and it hasn't been a huge jump, it's been minimal. It's now, it's what is it, the overnight is Mm 0.75. And a lot of people would say, that's nothing. But you sent an email, interestingly, that you read an article that had to do with the numbers of people who are using equity in their homes mm-hmm. uh, as a cash cow. And guess what happened later that day, or a cash machine, or a cash cow. Uh, later that day, I heard about a guy who had built a wonderful swimming pool outside his house, had bought his wife a brand-new Beamer, and gone out and bought himself a brand-new Mercedes-Benz wow. with the equity that was in his home. Now he's about three hundred grand in the hole for his house, and he's got three depreciating assets. I'm not saying you shouldn't buy a car and shouldn't have a pool, but there wasn't a whole lot of thinking that went into that particular procedure. It's not the first time I've heard this kind of story. Well, I think it's happened right across this country. Um, we've seen rising uh, home values, particularly in the Vancouver and Toronto markets. Um, and it's been an opportunity with these low, low, low interest rates to have a HELOC, and that is a home equity line of credit. And these have been cheap, cheap ways to borrow money. But I think you're right, Roy. Too many have been drunken sailors on this cheap, cheap, cheap borrowing. And the day of reckoning, we kept on saying it on the show. Catherine, you, myself, and Michelle, be careful here. Sooner or later, these rates are going to go up. What I find very interesting, of course, the variable rates all went up on mortgages, and that hits the um, lines of credit. Mm -hmm. Um, The long-term mortgages are tied to the bond market. I know this is complicated, so they've sort of held. My advice to anybody is you might want to look at locking in your mortgage at this point in time. But also what I found interesting, Roy, was none of the savings rates in the banks, which have been a record low, even went up. It was quick on the mark to get those lines of credit rates up, but nothing on the same. What a surprise. We need to let foreign banks into this country and give our banks some competition. They have far too cozy uh, an arrangement and have for forever. What I found interesting in, in part about this recent interest rate increase, and yeah, you know, when you're, when you're on the edge, even a small increase can put you over that edge. But I remember one of my sons bought a house about a year ago. And, you know, one of those rare instances, he depended on mummy's advice because he knows I know finance a lot better than him. And, and I gave him a lot of advice that saved him a whole whack of money. But um, what was intriguing, I, I, said, I, I, I asked him, I said, okay, what, you know, what, what are your mortgage terms again? I know he's locked in. I was curious about for how long and stuff. And he was surprised, and he's 28 years old, uh, that interest rates went up. There's a whole generation who came of age when we had record low rates that right. stayed the same for a very long time. What are interest rates? And they are now saying, oh, oh, this is something new. So, you know, we have it's every, every business cycle, you get a whole bunch of new people, and, and this is part of the indebtedness, too. When they see free money, an awful lot of people think, oh, bonanza, why wouldn't I take that, you know, home uh, equity line of credit and so on? Because they haven't seen the devastation personally. 
Yeah. But and that's sad because and of course we you know the old saying if we don't learn from history we're doomed to repeat it and that's unfortunately a lot of what causes a lot. Well, of you know what we all we have to do is think back to the 1980s. Those of us who yeah. were around then, so, when yeah, interest rates were about 18 percent. Something that I mean, I know with my young people, I know I, I ring the, their bells all the time financially because I know they don't, they haven't experienced it, and therefore they don't realize things can change often very quickly. Yeah, Linda, anything to add? Yeah. I was just going to say, remember there was a moratorium on mortgage renewals because people can afford it when their five-year wait went to 22%. Yeah. So uh, insanity. So be warned. And record, record debt in this country. Record debt. Yeah, I was Where looking at some stats. Over the last 10 years in Canada, virtually every sector of the economy, government, individuals, businesses, and so on, have doubled their debt. Mm-hmm. Doubled. I mean, that's just under 100% increase, which is... Massive. <laughs> well, the Massive. Uh, the the personal debt in Canada is what is it a trillion six? It's a higher over, than yeah. Yet in, coming up in that two, ballpark, two trillion. And and we often say it. You you don't. You, we're not even bringing in enough after tax income to service the debt. Well, um, you know, I, I've said this to you both before, and if you've heard me say it before, don't stop me because I want to hear it again. Um, Tom Caldwell, it's, it's, that was a joke, by the way. I, it's one of my jokes. I tried to slip it in. You should have both <laughs> laughed. Okay, okay, I laughed. Yeah. Did you get it? If you've heard this before, don't stop me because I want to hear it again. Um, Tom Caldwell, the chairman of Caldwell Securities, I remember being on the show with me a few years ago. Whenever I need a dose of sanity, when things are going crazy in the world, I call Tom. And, uh, and he said, you know, Roy, you speak so calmly. You know, in the worst crisis, Tom would be the calm person in the room. And he said, you know, Roy, when we were growing up, we wanted to know how much something cost before we bought it. Yeah. Today, yeah. all they want to know is, can I make the payments? Exactly. That's exactly. Okay. And I know I've used the example. One of my kids bought a car, and, the, the, and, and he said, oh, but, Mom, but I, I can afford that $350 a month. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> I sat yep. down, did the calculations, and he was going to be paying something like 8% in interest when I, when I did the math. And yeah. I gave him money out of my line of credit. He paid me off religiously. He he got rid of that car loan two years earlier okay. than Good if he had taken it. Well, from. well, how many young? So, you know, it just goes to show you how many young people, how many people themselves. And I don't want to destroy the car um, purchasing on time industry, but how many young, how many people really do the f- most fundamental math of, oh, of all? Yeah, when yeah. when when, when let me finish. When when somebody says. Look, you, you can stretch the payments out over 84 months. How many yeah. people actually go and say, that is seven years? That's ridiculous. And That's and seven pay- years. But you know what? None of this is complicated. This is what frustrates me. Yeah, Why isn't it this isn't. taught in our schools? This is basic arithmetic. It's because they have to teach sex ed. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we got to teach basket weaving or something and, and political correctness instead of fund. This is fundamental stuff that isn't complicated, and yet you're right. So many people, not just young people either, are so financially illiterate. And the financial institutions, and I'm sorry, I have no time for them. I worked for a bank once, as you know, as as an economist back in the day. And they feast off the ignorance of people uh, all the time. And, of course, they make a lot of money as a result. And it's it's predatory is what it is. I've never heard you this revved up before. Oh, well. (laughs) Working for a bank. She's, she's really, she's she's really life, f- let me tell you. <laughs> Linda's, Catherine's really flying, huh? Well, you know what? I'm getting riled up, too, Roy, because it's so Well, when, oh when you see, like Caldwell said, though, I mean, I remember my parents, they needed a new <laughs> fridge, and they didn't have much dough. So what did they do? Save the money. Exactly. Everybody under the, everybody's got a credit card. I've always said my dog could get a credit card. I'm actually tempted to make an application. I bet she could get a it's credit card. Oh, it's been done. It's been done. Yeah. It's been yeah. done. Okay, oh, stop, 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 please. I have to take a break, <laughs> and then we'll come back, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk some more. And uh, there was another issue that we were, what were we going to get at? Electric cars? Electric cars. Electric cars. Oh, we should maybe also talk about the fact the United States is assuring Canada that NAFTA will be win-win-win. Yeah. 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 What, does, what does Trump say all the time? Super fantastic. <laughs> Super califragilistic. His use of, his use of uh, superlatives is... Well, that's like Jane Philpott, the Federal Minister of Health, when I interviewed her, kept telling me how fantastic my questions were and then couldn't answer any of them. (laughs) She thought by flattering you, you'd back off. 
She should yeah, know better. Yeah, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Yeah, she didn't okay. know you clearly, right? She didn't know me clearly. We're going to take a break. We'll come back more with Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca, Linda Leatherdale, independent financial ad- expert, not advisor, expert, business expert, uh, LindaLeatherdale.com, and vice president of Cambria, Canada. Our great friend Michelle Simpson, the former Liberal MP and seatmate to the Prime Minister, is uh, at a charity golf tournament today for the hospice that Michelle supports. And uh, she and I had an email exchange earlier in the week, and she wanted me to mention this. And I just I sent her an email. I said, one of the situ- one of the concerns I have is when when a new life is born, there is tremendous excitement, as there should be. But when a life ebbs away, everyone looks away and. We need, we need to be more considerate. Um, anyway, uh, Michelle is at the golf tournament for the hospice. We'll come back more with Catherine and Linda, NAFTA, and electric cars. I, I saw one the other day, electric car. And the first thing I thought, what, what's wrong with that car? What, what, what's wrong? What, what's wrong with it? First of all, it's very quiet. But then I saw it didn't have an exhaust pipe. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. It's Catherine Swift, the WorkingCanadians.ca. What's the what's the background noise? Sounds like it's me. barking. <laughs> what are you doing now, Linda? I believe my daughter Sky has just arrived, and I apologize, but the pugs are going wild. I apologize. <laughs> I mean, you're either going to have to control those dogs, or I'm going to come over and control them for you. Well, well, I, I would love, they would love to meet your dog. Son's family here, and I am holed up in my bedroom so that I don't hear all the She's got a crazy dog, too. And dogs and et cetera. And my dog is the craziest of them all. I got the rowdies, oh. but I got two of them. I've got left, I've got, I've got it in stereo all day. And look, we have 10 seconds on NAFTA, literally, literally 10 seconds each. Go. Linda. Well, I'll believe it when I see it. I think this U.S. administration is so unpredictable. I don't think we can, we, we know what to expect. And, and I don't believe they're happy bromides about everything's going to be win-win-win. Okay, Linda? I think that uh, they should look at how it has worked for Canada and for the United States, and I think it's foolish to unseat it. And we shall tell within due course. Uh, Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, thank you so much. We'll get back with you next Saturday with another Beauties and the Beast. And I'll make sure the dogs are quiet. I wish you would. Keep those, give them a big treat, you know? Give them a treat. Feed, feed, feed Ian to them. I'm back in a minute. Tell you about tomorrow. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.